A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. I have with me Dr. Ron Dwinnells. Um, Ron is an author. He's a CEO. He's an MD. He's you've done a lot of things in your lifetime, Ron. But um, a lot of a lot of stuff in the um, you know in the healthcare industry. But also has become an author and is a great thought leader on on great leadership. Welcome to the show, Ron. Thank you very much. Thanks. Glad to be here. Oh, it's so nice to have you. And so one of the things that, that, that you know, all our listeners know is, is we always like to know how you get to become an expert. How do you get to the point where you can write a book and tell other people about great leadership? And you have a really great story, um, the, the story of, of how you started, how you, um, how you got to where you are today. And there's a lot of moving parts in your life. I wonder if you could uh, share your story with us. Yeah, that's that's a bit of an understatement, uh, uh, lots of moving parts in my life, but, <laughs> but you are very correct. Um, so uh, many years ago, probably around 25 years ago, I was asked by the local medical school to do some lectures on leadership. So, um, you know, as a physician, I think you're a natural or not a natural, but you're, you're placed in a leadership position all the time. Uh, if even if in private practice, if you run your private practice, you're the boss. So you're in, you're the leader. Uh, in, in my situation, I started a health uh, clinic many years ago, uh, 36 years ago, actually. And, um, and we have over 200 employees. Now we went from five to to, you know, over 200. So anyway, uh, but all those uh, aspects, all those different careers that I've done, all those different uh, situations I've been in require leadership. And um, so early on, I read the typical leadership books and, um, and they always told you what to do, how to do it, you know, those kinds of things. But as you know, leader, leadership is, is, is also a moving target. Uh, it's very situational and so forth. And anyway, over the years, I, I learned the best form of leadership or the best way to learn about leadership was through my mistakes. And anyway, going back, going circling back to the lectures. Um, so initially, when I started my lecture series at the medical school, it was about that. What do you do? You know, this is this is how you are as a leader and so forth. But then I, one day I told a story about one of my major screw-ups. And they loved it because a lot of people could relate to it. And, um, and anyway, I, I, I pondered on it and I realized, wow, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and it's not just mistakes. It's, it's in, and as I put it in the book, it's, it's fame. Uh, it's, it's the failures. It's, it's the acronym for um for all these mistakes, but failures, adversities, mistakes, and and I use E as my enemies. Uh, it, it, you know, it sounds bad, but you know anybody that's been in a leadership position always acquire enemies, whether it's intentional or not. Um, they might not like what you do. They might not agree with you. They might be jealous of you. They want what you got. You know, so that's the natural part. But you do learn from it. So, so that's kind of how things evolved uh, on a broad picture so that's that's how i came with the book came okay. up with the book so you got me yeah. curious what was the first story what was the one that was your trigger do you remember uh yeah oh yeah i do it's in the book actually um 
so early on, I wasn't a big believer in, um, in time clocks. Um, so I never had to use one. I, you know, I, I did, um, I went to school, I went to medical school, you know, we didn't have time clocks. Uh, it was always about getting the job done. You studied and you, you took your test. Uh, so then once I became a physician, you know, we don't punch in and out, uh, with time clocks. So I wasn't ever used to time clocks, but I knew obviously what the purpose of it was just to measure time so that I could pay them. Um, but I didn't like it. And, uh, and so, you know, my belief, I was very idealistic in my belief at the time is, Hey, we're all adults, you know, like you can manage your time. We're, we're all here to do a job. And, uh, and so let's just do, let's get rid of the time clocks. So I had maybe a dozen people at that time and, and they all nodded their heads and wow, Dr. D, they call me Dr. D, Dr. D you're, you're the greatest boss ever, you know? So Anyway, got rid of the time clock, and the first week it was great. Everybody showed up to work early, did their work, left late. Patients were being seen. Patients were happy. Everybody's happy. So I'm patting myself on the back thinking, wow, I'm, I'm like pretty good at this leadership stuff. And uh, anyway, uh, the next week, there's a couple people missing in action. I call them MIAs. So there's like, where's so-and-so? Oh, well, they had to go and take the dog out for a walk. Oh, okay. Uh, we're so-and-so. Well, they went for a McDonald's break, and they'll be right back. Okay. So, you know, no, no big deal. Um, third week comes along, and you know where the story is going. The third week comes along, and like half the people are missing. So where are they? You know, well, they got all these errands to run. So the other half that's left are really mad and upset because they're having to take the bulk of the work. The patients are being backed up. They're all mad. So everybody's mad. It's it's a total disaster. So then, then by the fourth week, I re-implemented the time clock, and you know, and then uh, actually everyone was happy. So so the lesson there was, you know, as a leader, you do need to provide structure. You you can provide the the big picture. You can provide the vision and so forth. But you also got to provide the structure, and uh, you know, and that's a minor lesson, but it's an important lesson because I still do that. I still make that mistake. It's like I just take things for granted where people can take self-responsibility and and we all know that's not possible that's not true um sometimes you got to give them that little structure so so that was that was and then uh, and then, and it was surprising how many people in in my um my class uh related to that and they you know gave me feedback on their stories about that so yeah you know sometimes we yeah. think that 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 leadership um you know, you know, leadership should just be let anybody, you know, everybody can be responsible. They can do whatever they can do. You know, just make, if they, if they all know the end game, they'll do just fine. But there is a, there is a level of management that's required. You know, we, we talk a lot in our practice about the difference between a leader and a manager. And I noticed you, yes. you've got one of Drucker's quotes in your book. Um, what, it, what's the quote again? So don't, don't be a manager or don't be a manager or don't, don't be a manager yeah, when you need to be a leader. Yes. 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 Yeah. And that gets to this whole concept, the difference between a manager and a leader. Both are required. You know, I've been to leadership trainings where they make it almost sound like management's a bad thing, but but you have to have some management required. Your story reminds me of, of one of my clients. We, we were laughing. They, they had just hired somebody, and as part of the hiring, um, this goes back a couple of years, but as part of the hiring, they offered two weeks vacation a year. So they hire this guy, and he doesn't show up for work. 
And they're like, what happened? And then they, you know, the next day he doesn't show up. They figure, okay, he ghosted him. He went somewhere else. And so they, they said, okay, guy didn't show up. And so they started, you know, they started the search back up and lo and behold, two weeks later, he walks in and they're, they're like, what are you doing? You were supposed to be here two weeks ago. He said, well, I took my vacation. <laughs> and, you know, of course, everybody's like, like, oh my gosh, you know, where, where do we blow it in that, right. that communication, right? You, you don't get to take your vacation the first two weeks of work. And of yes. course that, that didn't work out, but yeah. somewhere there was something missed, something in the structure yes. of the interview, something somewhere. Yeah. 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 I think, um, I think it's interesting too. It's, it's, it, this has just come up in, in this conversation, but you're, you know, early on, I think in any leadership position, like if it's a new start program or, or whatever, or if it's a small organization, yeah, it's, it's both. It's leader, it's being a leader and being a manager as well. But what's interesting as the company or the organization grows, then you, you tend to kind of sway more over towards the leadership, the, That's right. the visual aspects. That's right. Yeah. And I, I don't know, it's probably written somewhere, but I, it just dawned on me what you said, because I do make a big distinction on that, the differences between leaders and, and managers and, that's important, but yeah, yeah it's, it's very role specific. I mean, you know, when, when you're a small shop, like when you guys got started and you were five people, or even at that point where you were 12, everybody has to wear multiple hats. Now you get up to 200 people and you're going to have some frontline managers that, that are kind of, let's say, call first level. They're going to spend most of their life managing. Whereas right. at your level, you should be spending most of your life leading and the, and the roles in between, there's kind of this blend. But so, mm-hmm. so again, you know, we have kind of what we say about it, but I'd really be curious in your philosophy. In your mind, what what's the difference between a manager and a leader? Well, a manager is, and I the way I lecture on that is, a manager works on the system, uh, works within the system. So they tend to follow the policies and procedures, and they they make sure it's implemented. And they make sure they're followed. So that's the leadership. It's the the proverbial McDonald's. Uh, 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 shift manager type of person. So they, they, they know what to do. They have a go and they do it based on policies, procedures, and so forth. A leadership works on, on the system. So it's in the system and on the system. I might've said that backwards before, but uh, so, so we work kind of from the outside in is the way I look at it. Um, I know the vision. I know the big picture. I know where the whole organization needs to go. I don't deal with the, the details of the policies and procedures. I just know where we want to go and, and, and what the broad pictures are. I always talk about the forest uh, for the trees. Um, there's a lot of leaders who cannot see the forest for the trees. Um, so, uh, so one of the things I've struggled with for many years is finding good medical directors. Um, and, uh, and, and they're tough because if you think about it, doctors tend to be very much tree people. They know details about everything. And that's what I learned in, in school, right? I, I learned all these things about the Krebs cycle and, and all these chemical reactions that occur in your body and all these little details of anatomy and so forth. Okay, that's a tree thing. But they're not very good forest people. So they, they, they're okay as, a, as managers, but they're not too good as leaders. Um, 
and and so so that's I said I think that's a really good metaphor to distinguish between managers and, and leaders. Leaders are forest people. Managers tend to be more tree people. Yeah, I, 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 it's an excellent excellent metaphor on it. And again, now the real trick obviously is is the blended approach and knowing when to be a manager, when to be a leader mm-hmm. when you're when you're at the top mm-hmm. in particular. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is something I think you know anybody that's going to be in a leadership position, and even in your case with lecture, you know you've got doctors that go out and start their own practices, and they have to be leaders. I remember the first medical practice I ever worked with, very large oncology practice, um, the, the doctor who was kind of in charge, the managing, the managing director, there were actually seven partner doctors, and they had a couple hundred people in the practice all in by the time you took into account everything. And yeah. um, he and I really met almost by accident. We were just talking, and he said to me, he said, the biggest problem with doctors is, is all the training is about how to take care of people, how to manage care. He said, said yes. nowhere in the medical, you know, uh, educational programs do we learn, you know, how to lead people. We might learn some practice management. There's, you know, there's certain technical aspects of practice management and how to file a claim and all that kind of stuff. But, but where is it that, that if your practice gets, gets large, how, where is it that you actually talk about the vision of the practice, where you're going, the mission? And I think more and more is getting spoken about that today because, because entities like medical practices, accounting for, firms, legal firms didn't really think in those terms. You know, they were multi-partner groups and, you know, where corporations would get it, some of these, these high partnership organizations didn't. You know, they, they're very technical right. in nature. Right. No, I agree. I completely agree with that. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that we look at is, is we always take a look at the difference between management and leadership is, is about control, right? The leader delegates mm-hmm. control down into the organization, whereas right. the manager maintains the control of it. So right. it's, 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 it's really important stuff. Now, um, so are you finding, so, so do you still lecture to, to students today or yes. is that part of the past? Well, no, I, I still, I still, it's Neomed, uh, Northeast Ohio um, Medical College. It's a, uh, it's a conglomerate of several universities, um, Youngstown State, Kent State, Ohio University, Cleveland State. So all of those, those universities kind of joined forces and they created this medical school uh, in a neutral location. Uh, it's in Rootstown, Ohio, which is about an hour um, west of Youngstown. So, yeah, but I, I still do that. Uh, I also have lectured at, um, at other public seminar types of things uh, on, on leadership and, and so forth. So, yeah, so I do it every once in a while. Well, leadership is definitely transferable. That's, it's the one thing. It doesn't matter really what your business is, right, or what right. you're doing or whether we're even talking in the personal life. Right. That's excellent. And so, um, so you started this clinic. Um, you started it with five people. You've grown to 200. Is that the, uh, you know, early on I saw um, there was a uh, nonprofit. I can't get my notes to shift now. Isn't that funny? It's called Butterflies and Hope. Butterflies and Hope. Hope. Uh-huh. Yeah. So no, t- that- tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's, that's my own personal foundation. Um, so... Uh, I'm a pediatrician by education and training, so kids are in in my heart type of uh, type of thing. And um, uh, my dad had uh, uh, committed suicide when when I was younger, and uh, very traumatic for the family and and for us and and so forth. So 
Uh, and then I've had uh, a few people in my family who had been depressed and, and, and so forth. But anyway, um, uh, so my passion was or is children to help to help children and um, and to uh, make sure that I can do something uh, on the behavioral health level with the kids. Uh, so uh, I, I think you're familiar with the concept of ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Yep. Yep. So, you know, so my dad had ACEs and I think he never outgrew it. And, um, and as he got older, he got depressed, he got diabetes and so forth. And that's how he committed suicide. But anyway, I think, um, so, so my theory was, well, can I create a foundation to support children's behavioral health issues? Um, so, you know, that I, I so I want to dive a little bit deeper into this. We've actually come to the end of our first segment. So sorry to uh, to kind of cut you off here. So so everybody stay tuned for a minute. We're going to come back and, and we're going to talk about how, uh, you know, how Ron founded this um, this organization. Be back in just one minute. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Dr. Ron Donnell. Ron, just before we went to the break and I had to cut you off, we started talking about this um, this, this foundation, this organization that you founded that was focused on, on kids. And I have so many, so many um, questions popped to mind, but I wanted to maybe pick up where we, we left off. You were saying that your dad had committed suicide because he was suffering from ASIS uh, or had had suffered from ASIS and it, it, it impacted him. So how, how was that then the... the um, 
kind of basis of the founding of your organization, what exactly then does your organization do? Okay. So anyway, finishing up that part of it. um, So, yeah, so there, there has been, there have been um, some instances of um, mental illness in my family um, and primarily depression. And, um, and in some cases, they uh, they were broadly related to adverse childhood experiences. They they grew up in in adversity and so forth, and it's it it uh, very much affected their their behavioral development over time and so forth. So anyway, I know, I know a lot about it as a pediatrician and, and so forth. And um, so a few years ago, my mom passed away, left uh, left my myself and my two brothers some. Uh, some of her estate and I didn't want to squander the money away. So I decided to start a foundation uh, in honor of my parents. Um, so my, my mom ended up having Alzheimer's and so forth. But, but anyway, um, so the, the, the purpose of the foundation is to, to try to address some of these ACEs conditions in, in kids. So we've worked where um, we're, we've, trained first responders, uh, policemen, firemen, teachers, um, social workers. Uh, we, we've trained them in uh, recognizing ACEs and, uh, and then doing interventions. And basically the interventions is to get them in, into some type of counseling or, you know, it's very difficult right, right. to go into the families and, and try to straighten up the family, of course. Uh, but, but my theory and, and hope was that if we were able to even help one child get through the, you know, the, the, the roughness and the difficulty of a childhood and, and give them uh, an opportunity to, to put them on a straight path type of thing, then, hey, it's all worth it. So, so that's what we do. We do a lot of training, uh, a lot of support for health clinics and so forth. Do you, um, I don't know, maybe I'm getting a little too personal, but are you aware of what the event was that, that triggered your dad? Um, and can you share that with us? Yeah. Um, well, so he grew up during the depression, uh, back in the, uh, what, twenties and thirties, yeah. I think it's more than thirties. And, um, and so he suffered a lot, uh, a lot of personal things, a lot of food related things. They, they went hungry all the time. And anyway, so he was one of these uh, guys that joined the army when he was 17, uh, saw action in world war two, then later in Korea and, and so forth. And, uh, but, he never got past, I think, this whole concept of, of vying for food and, and so forth. And, um, and as he got older, um, it, it was like he hoarded food and he ate a lot of food. And, and he, he was a great cook, a wonderful cook, and everything he made, he, he would eat. That was part of his problem. And, um, but anyway, as he got uh, older, he, he became uh, overweight, over somewhat obese and ended up with diabetes while back then the doctors told him oh you gotta stop eating you gotta lose weight and um uh you know you gotta stop cooking well that was his passion he he, that was his art he loved cooking so he became depressed and it was one of those cyclic things so the more depressed he got the worse his diabetes got because he couldn't control it Mm -hmm. and the worse his diabetes got the more depressed he got so it was one of those back and forth things over over years and uh and it ended in in deep uh in in severe depression and he um um killed himself um 
He just couldn't handle it. So it was a depression-related thing. And how old were you when that happened? Mm, 18, 19. And, and so, but it had been going on for years. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, when it goes on for years, sometimes the impact isn't as strong, but that's almost yeah. an ACES type event for you, too. I mean, that's a level of trauma. Yeah. Trauma can take a lot of different forms, yeah. can't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think often, you know, when, when, when I hear, you know, when I hear about trauma and hear about trauma with kids, people's minds always go to something really heavy and huge, you know, lost a parent at a young age, you know, like in your case or, or, um, you know, was beaten or, you know, ended up on their own. But, but sometimes as simple as being hungry. And I don't think we even know how many kids are hungry in this world today. I mean, there's just, there's so much of that, even right here in America, we, we don't know and we're not aware of these, but there's a lot of mid-level and even low-level trauma that can have such an effect on people's lives. And, and most people go through oblivious, not even realizing it's there. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up with lots of aces. <laughs> I don't know if uh, you, you've looked at my uh, website, but I talk a little bit about it. Um, I my my mom was a single mom in J- Japan. She was Japanese. My dad was a U.S. Army soldier, stationed there for a while after the war, and uh, they met. and uh, And I was born um, out of wedlock, and my dad had left, and. Uh, you know, in, in Japan, uh, the society is quite homogeneous and, right. uh, and I was different, you know, and I looked different. I had, a, uh, actually I, I did have a Japanese name when, when I was born. Um, but they knew that I wasn't fully Japanese. So, you know, so there's a lot of bias, prejudice and so forth. So, uh, yeah, so I grew up with a lot of aces, but as you know, it's the resilience that, that that's how you overcome all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe somewhere along the line, uh, I had resilience. And I think it was probably my mom provided that resilience uh, support for me. So how do we help the kids that don't have that resilience or resilience support? You know, so I've, I've you know, I spent much of my life in Detroit and I've worked with some nonprofits up there. And, and I've seen situations where, um, well, I've seen a lot of good parents really trying to help their kids out, but I've also seen situations where, where you know, they don't know what to do. They, they don't know how to help their kid. They themselves are in so much trauma. Um, you know, what, what are some of the things that you guys look at and do to, to, to help out these families? Yeah. Well, as you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's the toughest part, obviously. How do we, how do we, uh, support, recreate, reconstruct a, a household because that's where it starts. And, uh, and obviously that's almost an impossible task, but uh, our approach tends to be, um, again, the frontline workers, right. the, the social workers, the policemen, first of all, to recognize it. Um, the second of all, the, the second phase of this that we're, we've been trying to do is to get the parents, try to identify who these people are and then trying to support the parents. That's obviously a very difficult task too, because there's so many that don't, don't admit it or don't want to admit uh, that they're beating their kids, obviously, and, and those kinds of things. So, so it's, it's a whole social discourse, if you will. It's, it's very difficult, but at this point, I don't know if there's real answers. Uh, I've read a lot on this topic and Nothing comes right out and says, "Hey, here's here's how we fix it." Here's the formula, uh, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> right. There isn't, and um, and it's support. Uh, so my belief is support, education, awareness, uh, and um, and these clinics that we have. We have uh, ten different locations now, 
And, uh, and all of my employees are trained in that. So they, they, they're trained to recognize ACEs. Uh, and if, if they are able to recognize them, uh, they report them to our physician staff. And then, um, then we try to get the social workers involved and, and so forth. But uh, so it's awareness, I believe, um, and, and as much support as we can. Uh, if the parents buy into it, great. But, you know, without the parental support and parental buy-in, it's, it's almost an impossible task, unfortunately. And, um, yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to assume then, based on your commentary, that you've got local agencies, um, you know, from a social work standpoint and other support agencies that you've even partnered with so that if, if you have a situation, you have some go-to people and all of that. Yeah, we have our own, actually. We, we developed our own behavioral health program. Um, yeah, so we have an integrated approach. Uh, so we have medical, dental, behavioral health. We have pharmacies. We have uh, dietetics. Um, so we have all of the supportive staff there. Uh, a whole slew, a whole army of um, uh, 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 patient educators, uh, those types of people. So, um, yeah, so that's that's one of the um, most important part of our our organization. One one of the interesting things that you might you might find interesting is um, we're getting we're, we're building an eleventh site uh, on the south side of Youngstown. And, uh, and I want to make it a different type of a health facility. Um, it's my 36 years uh, of experience in this field. And what I'm looking at is um, the, the health clinic, yes, we, we have a good integrated program where we deal with patients one-on-one, but we don't have a good program where, we, where we're dealing with social determinants. Uh, the social determinants of poor health. Um, sure. And these are things like, yeah, so on the south side of Youngstown, it tends to be a food desert. Uh, so uh, so one of the things we want to do at that location is we want to create a campus where we're going to have greenhouses there as well. Uh, and people can come and volunteer if they want, but the docs will have the ability to write on the prescription sheet, uh, hey, get some vegetables over at the greenhouse. Uh, we're going to have a community kitchen where we're going to bring in guest chefs um, once a week, once a month, whatever, and they're going to teach people how to um, how to cook healthy, more healthy, and 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 so forth. We're going to have exercise classes. That location happens to be very near a large park. We're going to have nature walks. So we're going to address social determinants. We're going to address the the safety aspect of that area, uh, it's, it's, it's blighted with crime. So we're going to, uh, you know, to give these people support so that they can go outside and, and do the exercises and, and so forth. So, uh, so anyway, I, I'm, I'm saying this because one of the things that we want to address too is these ACEs with some of these kids. If we're identifying them, then can we identify them there? And then can we do something to support the child and the family? Um, through these social determinant types of activities, so that's kind of the theory. <laughs> yeah, no, it, and and I think what you, what you're getting to is this concept that it's all integrated in one form or another. I mean, all these things go hand in hand, and so social determinants of health. It's a it's a term I'm I'm familiar with because some of the work that I've done. Uh, I don't know that all our our listeners would 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 understand and pick up exactly what it is, but they're things like you know, is food available? Are they safe? Um, you know, do they have good, clean housing? You know, you know, are, are they living in a safe environment? Um, 
you know, are the, are the negative influences, you know, under control or, or moved away? Um, what are some of the others? Yeah, well, from a medical point of view, uh, the, the reason that's important is because in this particular area, in most areas where there's, um, uh, it's a food, it's construed as a food desert, the people tend to get their food sources from these quick shops, if you will, the convenience shops. Nothing bad about them, but they don't have the best foods. Right. They have all the good tasting foods, as I say, the the chips and, and the and the Hostess Ho-Hos and, and the Twinkies and all that. Uh, they all taste good, the pop, uh, beer sometimes, and, and so forth. But in, from the medical point of view, that's what leads to overweightness. That's what leads to obesity. And we know medically, we know obesity is the gateway to chronic diseases. Um, we, we know that that's what leads to diabetes, heart disease. We even know that there's certain cancers that are uh, directly correlated with overweight and obesity. So the point is, is if we can control and if we can help support uh, that aspect of the social determinant, then can we also reduce the, the uh, incidence of chronic diseases? Sure. And I believe we can. Uh, it's, it's more of a population health management as opposed to individual health management. We're still going to do that, but I want to add that second element where we're going to deal with the population as a whole uh, as well. So it's going to be a little bit of a different kind of health facility. Uh, the community is very excited about it. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's, it's going to be fun, actually, from a medical point of view. I really, I, I love the idea because, again, it, it, it brings so many different facets into play. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're already up on our next break, so time, time goes by really quickly. Um, when we come back, though, I want to I dive in because a lot of what I've heard, if I'm reading between the lines, is a lot of what I've heard is, is a lot of the stuff that, again, we talk about a lot on this show is, is, is the power of purpose and being purpose-driven to mission. Yes. And that's a very important aspect of leadership. And so what I'd love to do is go down that path a little bit and then you know, start moving into maybe some of the, the, the learnings from the book because all this stuff ties mm-hmm. together. So, yeah, it does. Yeah. So everybody, stay tuned. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with more with Ron. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit MexicuteGroup.com. That's M-E-X-E-C-U-T-E Group.com.
This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And I'm back one last time with Dr. Ron um, Duenels. And so, Ron, just before we went to the break, you know, I, I kind of teed up what I wanted to talk about. And, and so a lot of what I heard you talking about, I mean, obviously, you know, getting into this 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 nonprofit that you're doing right now and helping kids and, and all that is so near and dear to your heart. I mean, you know, a lot of, you know, from the family history and everything else, that it does create a strong purpose. Tell me how that purpose drives um, your organization and how has it helped you find the right people? Because I think, you know, there's, there you know, we got to hire people. And there's the, the right people, which are the people that will move the organization forward. And sometimes there's the wrong people. Collins talks about the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus. You know, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm a real believer in purpose-driven organizations, um, you know, creating kind of the right culture around that. But how, is, how has this purpose helped you find the right people? And, and has it caused some people maybe to leave that weren't aligned to the purpose? Or have you had to exit people that weren't aligned to the, the purpose? How did you lead through all of that? Yeah, as you probably know, that's the hardest part about, one of the hardest part about leadership is to convey your passions, your inspirations to others. Um, Most people, um, now in in our type of organization, we have various levels of folks. So we have the front desk people who can be high school graduates uh, with say no a college or no other education and, and so forth uh, with very little life experiences to the physician who are highly educated, who may have lots of life experiences. So, so we have a whole gamut uh, of, of types of people with different backgrounds. So to, to instill the passion and the inspiration to every one of them is, is impossible. Um, I've learned that many, many years ago. Uh, just because it's my passion doesn't mean it's their passion. So I talk about it a lot. I, I try to do a lot of action types of, of things. Uh, I do tell a lot of stories like you. <laughs> I tell a lot of stories and sometimes I get and sometimes I don't. So uh, so I don't think it's, um, it, and, and yes, it's hit or miss in terms of how uh, we hire people. And do, do we hire the right ones, don't we? Uh, I think uh, an important part um, is always, um, you know, ask them about situations. Um, ask them about, tell me a story about something that's very passionate to you. Sure. Uh, to me, yeah, to me, those are, those are very enlightening. So, but, uh, but you don't get that all the time. And, uh, and, you know, and of course we've made lots, lots of mistakes of, with people hiring and, and so forth. So I don't know if there's really one clear answer on that. Uh <laughs> Because uh, that's a lot of my stories are based on some of those mistakes that I made uh, hiring people, yeah, <laughs> hiring absolutely. the wrong people. <laughs> uh, we, yeah. we've, we've all been there. And, you know, I, I've often said if, if, if I ever figure out the science behind it, I'd write, write a book and be a multi, multi-millionaire, right? Because there, you go. <laughs> there are aspects of, of leadership that are really more art than science. Mm-hmm. And especially finding people who are really the right fit, but that—that's all led to your book, which is um, titled "Don't Pick Up All the Dog Hairs: um, Lessons for Life and Leadership." Um, I, I, I get a kick because you know every—it seems like every leadership book I read tells you what you should do, and you kind of said this in your opening comments. But this is a bunch of don'ts, and you've got great chapter titles. I love some of these. You know, um, <laughs> "Don't Dress Like a Warthog," "Don't Be a Jamoke." What's a jamoke? Well, if, if you read the story, it tells you, but it's, uh, jamokes are, 
um, I don't know, basically losers, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's apparently an old country term. Uh, my father-in-law, uh, was from Romania and, um, very, very bright man, uh, top, uh, engineer. He was an engineering professor at a local university and so forth, but he always used those terms. Uh, look at that Jamok. Uh, you know, <laughs> in other words, they're losers. Don't don't be a loser. You know, <laughs> and so <laughs> <But> from, <that's laughs> from a leadership standpoint, and so I, I really want to dive into a couple of these stories while we have while we have a few minutes left. Right. How, how do you how do you prevent from being a loser when it comes to, to <laughs> what is a loser from a leadership standpoint? <laughs> well, people who uh, just don't care, uh, who don't have the passion, who's just there and you know, just collecting a paycheck and, and that's it. They have no interest in the work. They have no interest in the, in the people. They have no interest in anything. And there's all, there is quite a few of those around and, uh, you know, it's just a fact of life. And, um, um, but, um, but yeah. And, and of course we have other types of losers where Jamokes, where, um, where people intentionally may sabotage uh, a flow because they don't like somebody or, or whatever, you know, we've all seen the game playing in any, in any workplace. Um, but, uh, and of course it, there's going to be some jamokes, but, um, uh, but try not to be one yourself type of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, at yeah. least from the passion standpoint, I think it's so important to be passionate what you do. And if I, I would always challenge whether it's friends or anybody else, if you find yourself just sitting in a job where you're collecting a paycheck and you just can't wait to get home, you're in the wrong job. You know, go yep. find something where you have some energy and passion because life is going to be a lot better. You're going to spend most of your life doing your work anyway. Why not enjoy it? Um, don't dress like a warthog. How does a warthog dress? <laughs> well, the story is pretty good in there. Uh, a couple years ago, um, I climbed mountains as a hobby. Mm-hmm. And my, one of my daughters uh, goes with me. We were in Kilimanjaro in Africa. And, uh, and anyway, after the climb, we went on a uh, safari. The, uh, the safari guide's name, his name was Agri. And he, he had all these interesting quips about things and uh, just a different perspective on life. Um, and, uh, and anyway, um, so there were warthogs and, uh, and they don't, you know, they, they're kind of dirty. And, uh, and, uh, so anyway, um, um, I, he said, uh, he says, you know, don't, don't ever look like them. You know, always, always look nice. And when you go out in public and, you know, the, so he had all these little sayings like that. And, um, and I, I forget what angle I took on, on, on the book, but, uh, but I, I also became a board certified physician executive a few mm-hmm. years ago. Um, there's actually a, a board certification in that. And I recall one of the, the lectures that we did, we had to go through a one week course. And one of the lectures was about dressing and looking like an executive yeah. and how yeah. important it was. Well, prior to that, I, you know, I was kind of, I grew up in the sixties and seventies. So, you know, I'm, I was used to the, the hippie look and, you know, and I wasn't really into the dress thing. And, uh, and I go to, I'd see patients in jeans and t-shirts sometimes, you know, it was one of those types. And, um, but anyway, I, I sat there and listened to them and I thought, you know, they're, they're right. Because part of my job as, as an executive became where I met with other executives, hospital executives and so forth. And they never took me seriously. And then I realized, well, that's probably because of the way I looked, you know. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I thought that was interesting. So the point about that is, 
Yeah, you know what? You, you you sometimes gotta gotta go with a trend uh, in society and uh, and and dress up. Um, you know, look like an executive, act like an executive. Then then people will respect you more, and uh, and sometimes that may make all the difference uh, in 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 anything, in in any deals that you make or or any projects that you may be working on. You know, it's it's funny. Because, you know, we've heard dress for success so many times, but I do believe that there is a mental shift that occurs when you take that few minutes to look a little bit nicer. And especially in the last year and a half when so much has been done virtually. And I can tell you just sitting in, in, you know, in group calls and all of that stuff, the the guy that's in his T-shirt that's kicked back and, you know, whatever is, is the guy that's not participating in the calls and the few people that, that, that dress up and they're, they're in it's, you know, they see that it's still a day at work. You know, they're much more active there. There really truly is something to it. I, I was just at a retreat last week and I had a long drive home. They were going out and playing um, golf in the the second part of the day because the retreat was going to be done and I was going to drive back. And so, you know, one of the very few times I came into the room wearing a, you know, golf shirt for a long drive as opposed to wearing a, a dress shirt, I felt so out of place. I mean, I, I felt myself actually, and even though they were all in golf shirts, running the retreat and everything, it was just so out of my uniform, if you will, it, it was uncomfortable. <laughs> Um, right. I think you get used to some of this, but but there really is a truth. Yeah. Um, one of the, well, and, and I, I think it's interesting because I, I, I noticed that, I feel more confident. I feel better. I feel, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's the confidence when, when you dress decently, um, you have more confidence. Uh, when I do my talks out in public, I usually wear a tie and, you know, and, and I feel very confident when I talk. Um, so I think there's a lot to it. There's a lot of psychology in there. And there's obviously there's all kinds of books written on that, but, uh, yeah. But. Well, yeah, and and that's the part that I just never want to minimize is yeah. the psychology that's in play in every moment of leadership. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I I often thought that these MBA programs, um, I realized when I took my MBA program, there's nothing on psychology. I mean, there should be psychology no. classes as part of, you know, leadership. Yes. I mean, when you're talking yes. really about, um, you know, you know, getting that level of education, where is the psychology and how to work with people? So the, another another chapter, it's near and dear to my heart. Um, I don't know if I'll get the title exactly right, but it's kind of like, don't be a squirrel. And oh, yeah. we talk a lot about being priority driven, but but talk to us a little bit about don't be a squirrel. Well, yeah. So, so actually my, my class is like that one because um, I say, okay, don't be a squirrel. What's that mean to you? You know, and um and they, uh, they, they, most of them know, you, you know, squirrels, if you're, when you're driving, they, these squirrels are in front of your car and they can't make a decision. You know, should they go across the street or should they stay on the side? And they go back and forth. So, you know, so it's about indecisiveness. And, and a good leader needs to, needs to make that decision and stick with it. You may know very early that it was the wrong decision. If you do, then admit it and say, hey, look, I screwed up. This isn't the right way we need to go. We need to do it this way. But at least have definitive plans and a definitive vision. And that's uh, that's really the point of it. And, and that's yeah. a simple one, obviously. But uh, but there's so many leaders that kind of wishy-washy and they go back and forth. Well, maybe this, maybe that, you know. Well, if you and, and the metaphor there is, you know, I, I don't think I say it in the book, but I think it's implied that, hey, when the squirrel can't make the decision, they get run over, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, and that's what happens, I think, in, in real life. Um, 
you got to make that decision. Absolutely. One of the things that we, we do, and this is another philosophy in your book. And so when we, we work with leaders that are, that are at that level of decisiveness, we try to unpack what causes that. And more often than not, um, it's that they have a lack of clarity as to where they're trying to go long-term and even short-term. And so yes. one of the points we hammer home and, and, you know, it's something actually the way I learned from Vern Harnish with, with his book, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, he talks about the importance of being priority driven, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. you have a chapter that says don't fail to prioritize. And we talk about priorities. Mm-hmm. I, I think if, 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 if you take a moment every single day and prioritize your day, if you take take time every week and prioritize where your team is going, et cetera. And, and you maintain some absolute clarity on what's most important. I think it, it really helps with eliminating a lot of indecisiveness. Yes. Yeah. That, that's actually a really good chapter. I think I like that one. Some people don't, but I liked it because I, uh, I think that's the chapter I do the metaphor about the rocks, mm-hmm. the big uh-huh. rocks. Uh, and I learned that from a Stephen Covey book many, right. many years ago. Right. And I, and I used to do that demonstration in, in my lectures uh, and, and they loved it. And most people got the point, you know, if you don't put your big rocks in, if you don't prioritize, you, you know, you, you'll never get them in if you have all these little rocks going on. And, and that was the point. Uh, and we all have little rocks going on every single day. And so many times I've, I've had to put things aside that should have been in there first. So, yeah, you know, we, yeah. we hear we hear people and how busy they are all the time. And there was a story where John Wooden once um, challenged one of one of the kids that said how busy he was, and Wooden said, "I don't care how busy you were, were you productive?" You know, and so you know, I always think in terms of, you know, are we doing the things that will really move the ball for us? What's the most important stuff? Even in our day, even at home on a Saturday, you know, if you're going to put some time into something, what's what are the things that are going to move the ball? Because busy work, well, one busy work's not usually very energizing anyway, and you don't get this this sense of accomplishment because you still see all these other things you need to do. But if you just pause and say, what's most important? What's the most important thing we need to achieve? Because the other side of the coin is, is when you tackle the most important things, they almost always take a little longer than you think anyway, right? Nothing ever goes quite as planned, but at least you're, you're, you have this sense of accomplishment along the way. Um, Let me touch on one other don't fly with the turkeys. I think this goes with the Jamoke a little bit, but but this is a little bit more about who you commiserate with. Um, share, share that story. That's a great one. And then we'll probably have to wrap the show at this point. Well, the story is, uh, so back in the 70s, uh, when I was in college, um, you know, tennis was huge. And, um, and they had all those tennis stars and everybody's always watching tennis and everybody's playing tennis. And and, uh, and yeah, I had a friend who was in med school at the time and he was pretty good. And, um, and anyway, he was this, this guy who didn't mince words, you know? So anyway, uh, so we were, we were very good friends, but, um, but I go out and do pickup games and, uh, and I'd always win. Well, you know, I'd always win because these other people were really bad. And, uh, and, but, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, man, I'm, like, I'm really good. You know, I could probably be one of these tennis stars, you know? And then one day I get this resounding beating from this guy and, uh, and it was like, wow, you know, and I was really depressed and, and my friend, um, you know, he's, he's looking at me and again, he's no nonsense. And, you know, and he starts basically verbally attacking me about what a Turkey I am. Uh, and, and then I'm going to be a Turkey as long as I keep playing with these loser types the Jamokes <laughs> and, uh, and do I, and, and, and that's the only, only thing I'll be is a Jamoke or a Turkey. If, uh, if I keep playing it, so you got to play with somebody better. 
same goes for for our our daily work lives, our our leadership lives. Hey, if if you're going to work with a bunch of you know, <laughs> I hate to keep saying the term, but the losers, the jamokes, um, then you'll never get far in life. And that's that's a basic, right? You know, yeah. you're only going to yeah. be as good as the people that you deal with. Uh, and that's how you improve. So, so don't worry about losing or getting beat. It's okay. Um, it's, it, yeah. Yeah. Some of the best company leaders I've seen are the ones that surround themselves or try to surround themselves with better. Yes. You know, it's, it's amazing how many CEOs I'll meet who are, who are so afraid of their stature that they yes. want, they want people that they can control and, and they yes. don't get better. Um, and sooner or later, their competition has surpassed them. Other things have occurred, and they sit around scratching their head. And, and you know, all this time, they, they still think, even in some cases, they have all the answers. And yet yeah. the ones that outperform are the ones that, that put the best people possible around them, that learn from others, and let, let, the, let the, the A-player athletes, if you will, the, the A-player leaders, really move their organization forward. It's a great philosophy. We are, unfortunately, at the end of our time. Um, time goes so incredibly fast. It's a, <laughs> my listeners are probably sick of me saying that. Um, just for me, these, <laughs> these interviews go quickly. But um, I want to highlight that the book is called Don't Pick Up All the Dog Hairs. It's available on Amazon uh, from Dr. Ron uh, uh, Dwinnells. And uh, it, it's really, you know, for those of you who are like me that, that love a book that's a, you know, you know, I hate to say it's a fast read. It's not a short book by any means, but there's there's so much content in it. But it's organized in a way, and the stories are wonderful. That that it's 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 easy to get through, and the stories make an impact. So, um, really, it is it's become one of my favorites that I've read in a long time, and and, oh. and I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. That's very kind. Thank you. So, so everybody, check the book out. Um, Ron, maybe we'll have you back on, on sometime in the future, and we'll talk a little bit more. I appreciate the stories that you shared and the work that you're doing. You're doing so much good work in, in, in the world with children and, and other people who are at risk and with needs, and um, we appreciate that as well. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, and I appreciate you, and I appreciate this time with you. So, uh, yeah, please have me on again. I like talking with you. <laughs> well, I like we'll have, your stories too. <laughs> we'll have some more fun. Okay, everyone. Well, okay. that's uh, that's it for this week. We've got to run. Um, you know, take care. Have a great week, and we will see you soon. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.